It was called the Red Ball Express, a convoy of trucks, nearly 6,000 a day, that for three months in 1944 carried critically needed supplies, gas, food, ammunition, medical, to equip the post-D-Day push deep into France. Without the Red Ball Express, the war in Europe would have lasted longer and claimed more lives. 75% of the men who worked the Red Ball Express were African-American. Truck drivers, loaders, mechanics. For in a segregated military, the white command had long held that blacks were suitable only for secondary roles, not fit for combat. Corporal Hank Robertson, now 97, was part of the Red Ball Express. His service was one of unquestioned devotion to his country in the face of constant, painful discrimination. From Honor Flight Chicago, here is Hank's story. Hank, you were born and raised in Louisville, Mississippi. That, right. That was deep in the segregated South. Uh, born, born in... Yeah, raised in Louisville, Mississippi, in a little place called, uh, well, I, knew, I lived in the country, about 16 miles from Louisville, Mississippi, mm-hmm. on the farm. So you were a farm boy when you grew up? Yeah, I grew up on the farm. You were drafted, right? Yes. I was 18 years old when they drafted me, and I got, got my age mixed up. I was supposed to... Uh, I was supposed to go with the boy, probably 20, but they got my age mixed up, and it took me a while to get it straightened out. And so the guy told me, he said, by the time you get it straight, you're going to have to go anyway, so you might as well go. So I went in with a bunch. I was younger than the bunch that I was supposed to go anyway. Did you know what the Army had in mind for you? Did you know where you were going to be sent? You know, I knew I was drafted, and I went to Camp Chabry. Mississippi, you know, that's us. And, and that has separated me and sent me to Georgia, Camp Stewart, Georgia. And that's why I took my basic training, probably. And while I was in Camp Stewart, there was a race ride. And they busted up our outfit and sent me to. Then I ended up in Kansas, Fort Riley, Kansas. What, what brought about the race riot? Well, uh, one of the soldiers' wives, come to visit him, and she was mistreated at the gate, you know, when he coming in, uh, in at the gate, and that's what started the ride. A black, one of the black soldiers' wife come to visit. You know, when I went in the Army, it was integrated, segregated, you know. Yes. It was segregated. We had all white officers, and, uh, but, uh, you know, we were separated from the white and the black. How, how did that show itself? You had your own quarters. You had your own latrines. You could not be. You could you mix with white soldiers? Couldn't mix with white soldiers. So they had their own, uh, you know, place. What you call it? Uh, a mess. Recreation centers okay. and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we were separated. Totally. We didn't. We didn't deal with the white soldiers. Period. Until after the birds. You know, after I told you. What was the attitude that the white uh, ranking officers well, the, had? The white officers, you know, I mean, we we had white officers, but the attitude uh, is just depending on the soldier, you know. 
I mean, I was able to get along with people because uh, I tried to do what they asked me to do. You tried to go along and do what you were told to do. That's what a soldier does. Well, but t- down in Camp Stewart, Georgia, you know, me and Georgia was a segregated uh, place, you know, but uh, I didn't have no problem. We had a place where we can go, but we go to town on the pass. Sometimes, you know, uh, we, we were called different names, you know, I mean, in town, but that, that didn't bother me because long long time didn't bother me. I didn't bother them. You're eventually assigned to the 957th Quartermaster Corps. Right. And you 957th Quartermaster Supply. And you go to Europe. Well, Paul, well, when we first started out, when I first uh, got to uh, Camp Stewart, we were in the anti-aircraft coast artillery. We were dealing with the big guns. Okay. And we, that happened until after the... Uh, Right. Then after the ride, when I went to Port Riley, Kansas, that's when they put us in the quartermaster supply. And then after that, after Port Riley, Kansas, have a ship overseas. But during the time in Kansas, when we go to town, like I said, it was it was, it was segregated, and uh, we had our place to go in town, you know, and we you had your place, to, and, and we were separated. Yes. It was kind of miserable at the time, but when I, I soon got used to it. It can't be rewarding in any way when you're looked down upon and told you can't do certain things. But uh, it, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, you know, how to get along with people. And uh, fact of business, Paul, I'm going to bring you up to date. I mean, when I was coming up, we lived on the farm. See, my daddy owned, my father owned this land. I never worked on no sharecropper. And we were all, my dad had taught us, you know, how to get along with one another, how to get along with people. And we didn't have any problem. During the segregation, you know. Yes. If, if, if we go to town to do something, my dad had told us, go and do what you got to do and you know, stay out of the way. You know, do what you got to do and come on back home. Other words, I knew my place, and they knew where I was supposed to go. Let, let me take you forward to when you arrive in France, and you arrive there, and you do you know what you're going to be doing? Yeah, when we arrived, and in, 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 in we got uh, we we landed in Liverpool, London. That's why we, we went overseas, and they would. And the people had been taught that we, we were different. We had tails, you know. And some of the kids, people in over there used to look look for our tail. You mean because a, we, you a, know, black. You mean a physical tail? They they imagine like a, a physical tail? Yeah, on... they, they would look. And, and <laughs> they had been taught. The white people had told them that what we were. We were second-class citizens, you know. Right. So were you and supposed to? It was kind of to... miserable at the time, but uh, it, it, it it all worked out. I learned a lot when I knew me. Does that mean that, with the suggestion that you had a tail, that you were supposed to be the devil? Blacks were supposed to be devilish. Yeah, they would actually look, you know, to see what's our tail. You know. Oh man. <laughs> oh man, it's just, it was it was kind of. 
the blues overseas would come in contact with a lot of the white soldiers, you know. Mm-hmm. We know, I mean, sometimes we'd have run into some problems with them, you know, they want to call us niggas and all this kind of stuff, you know. But uh, sometimes we got in fights in town, you know. And I was very lucky, you know, being to keep from uh, doing something real bad, you know, where I'm not getting no real trouble over there, because you know, I had a chance. I mean, the reason sometimes to do some harm to a whole lot of them from names they called me, you know. But uh, I was able to keep my cool, and I'm, I thank God for that. Well, but it wasn't easy at all, Paul. It wasn't easy. But we had our job to do, and uh, I was in the quartermaster, and we supplied the, the food and the gasoline. And, and by the way, I told you about uh, we, we were in charge of the gasoline that furnished the gas for Patton's Army. That was part of the Red Ball Express. It's Red Ball Express, yeah. Tell me about and the I Red... I had a cousin, uh, he, he was driving in that Red Ball Express. One of my first cousins, lived, we lived... His dad and my daddy was brothers. And I got to, to meet him while I was over there, you know. Tell me about the Red Ball Express. What was it supposed to do? Well, the Red Ball Inspection one took the money, took the gas to the to the front line. But we was in, we would load the gas. You know, they'd come to our, our dump, and I, I was in charge of the detail that loaded the trucks. Well, the, this was a big operation. The Red Ball Express, yeah, uh, 6,000 yeah. trucks every day, 12,000 tons of rations and ammo and gasoline, Right, Every, right. Everything that Patton's Third Army needed to keep pushing across France and into Germany. And right. with, without without you guys and what you did, and, and we should say that most of the people that were in the Red Ball Express were black, right? African Americans, I think, accounted for like 75% of the drivers and the suppliers, the loaders. And so what what was your job, Hank? What was your specific job for the Red Ball Express? Well, see, I had a... A, a, a bunch of men, I think it was a, a platoon, what you call it, and I was a corporal, and I was in charge of those people that loading the gas. It's my responsibility is to see that all the work is going on, you know. Everything worked probably pretty good, you know, but we had some uh, had some problems. Sometimes the, the white drivers would try to, try to get in front, you know, to get his load first, and I, it's my job to keep everybody in line, in the orderly. You know, I mean, you come get your truck, you get your truck, you stay in line and get your load and, and, and like that. Well, all the trucks that were part of the Red Ball Express, Red, uh, Red Ball Express, yeah, yeah. You you had a a, a a route that was like as many as 700 miles. The the drivers drove at night. They were under constant threat of bombing by the Luftwaffe, snipers. Narrow roads, and you you had to put cat eyes on the uh, on the on the uh, headlamps so that you wouldn't be seen. But you were under all those drivers and all those crews were under constant threat, were they not? Right. If what you did had not uh, worked out as well as it did, 
Patton wouldn't been a, wouldn't have been able to make the progress that he did. You had to get the supplies to them because I think you you told me once that you know you realize the importance of keeping a moving army supplied with everything it needs, and if you can't right. get the supplies to them, it's going to be a failed venture. And you managed to do it. Yeah, we managed. We, 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 we was able to get it done. You know what I mean? Yeah. But. Uh, Sometimes we got good critics, and sometimes we didn't, you know, I mean, because, you know, he was in the Army. But everything worked out fine. And, and I, I, I come to like it, you know, I mean, because uh, I seemed like I was doing, I thought I was doing something, but really, really what uh, made me feel good after I got out of the service, uh, Paul, and when I got discharged, and I talked to a lot of people, you know, about this honor flight. When I went on this honor flight, and that's when I really understood how important it was what I was doing. Because if I hadn't got the, well, we hadn't got the gas to the line, they couldn't fight. And so my job was just as important as the people on the front line fighting. Absolutely. And I, that's, I, I come to understand that, and that made me feel different, better, you know made me feel like I was part of the United States Army. You had told me once, Hank, that when the Battle of the Bulge came around in mid-December 1944, Uh that men were desperately needed, and the uh, command structure of the Army finally said, rightfully, that, that blacks can fight just as hard as whites. And so... Blacks became part of the the counteroffensive in the Battle of the Bulge, and you told me that you finally, at that point, felt like real soldiers. Yeah, we become a real soldier after the Battle of the Bulge, and that's when the blacks was able to fight on the front line. What did you What did you all say to each other when you finally got that opportunity to engage in combat? Well, I I I, I didn't I didn't do no you know after the invasion. I went in on Normandy Beach about 14 days after D-Day. Mm-hmm. And I got chance to see a whole lot of, you know, uh, damage had been done to different things. You know, I saw dead people, you know, and all this kind of thing. I, I was pretty close to the front. <laughs> I was up close enough. <laughs> I managed and, uh, to, to make it through it, and we, we made it back. But you didn't. And, uh, during the time when I was over there, I got to meet some people. I told you about I met uh, Jackie Robinson. He oh. played football. I played football with him, and uh, we had a we had a, uh, a recreation, uh, other word, athletic uh, thing uh, committee. And Jackie Robinson was was in charge of this, and he I played football with him, and we had a baseball team and all that kind of stuff. It was all black until Frank Benz, I was in a black outfit all the time after even after the integration after after the Battle of the Bird. So and, you, uh, and one experience that I had you know, when we getting ready when we got discharged, I hope I'm not going too fast. Oh, you're fine. And uh, we come to uh, we come on the train and we come to through Arkansas and the notice the the white soldier was able to get off the train and exercise, but we couldn't do it. We found out later because there wasn't no blacks allowed in that little town. 
That's after I got discharged now. After you've served and risked after your I life. After I served in the Army, as I say, a soldier, and did my job, as a, you know, got an honorable discharge, then we couldn't, you know, we were still black. We were still segregated in this little town. We couldn't get off the train. What, were you, what did you think about that? Well, I thought kind of bad about it, you know. After I, once I got to be a soldier and did my job in the Army, it, it bothered me more than it did before I went in the Army. Because I saw what we've done. Everybody was was uh, there to do what they're supposed to do. And we were all soldiers, American soldiers. But yet and still, we didn't we didn't have our rights. But it all worked out, you know me. I don't know. Well, do you still feel the sting of discrimination when you look back at your service in the military? Does it still anger you? No, it don't bother me now, uh, Paul. Uh, it did for a while, you know. I mean, uh, like I told you when, uh, before, I think I told you about when I got discharged, I wanted to come home, go to my home. But it was raining when we got discharged. And uh, a cab driver was going to, he told me, I'll, I'll take you. I live about 16 miles out in the country. We didn't have, we had dirt roads, you know, wasn't no pavement and nothing like that. And so I told him, I said, now, man, it's bad out there. That road is bad. As he might not. He said, oh, I'll get you there. And so we got about five miles from my home. And we ran in the ditch. The cab got stuck. And so I remembered an old white guy. His name was uh, Cunningham. I think it's over there with him, and he knew my father. And so when I went to that house and knocked on the door, and he came to the door, and I told him who I was, my Charlie Robinson's son, and he got about the bed and put on his clothes and he got the tractor. He was he worked on the road. He was a road supervisor. He took that tractor and pulled that car out the ditch and got it straight so the guy brought me back to town. He, he he said, well, I tried to get you there. Then, and I, I told him, I said, I'm, I'm not going to give you any money. I told you it wasn't any good. The road was bad, and you might not make it. So I went by my cousin's house. And during this integration, he was a policeman, my cousin, in that little town, my little town, Louisville, Mississippi. And so he told him, he said, he owe you nothing because he told you he explained it first. So he, after that, after he talked with him, we went on. Mm-hmm. But see, I was a little braver then, because I was a soldier. I, I did my job, and I, and I felt like a human being like anybody else. You know me? Mm-hmm. But I had that little experience, you know, but, but I never got in no trouble. When you look back on your service, Hank, are you proud of what you did and proud of what your mates did in the oh, 957th? Yeah. yeah, I'm proud of well, being a, a soldier. I mean, I'm proud of what I did after, like I told you, when I went to Toronto fight and how the people treated me, just like they treated all the rest of the, the white white soldiers. We all, we all was on that plane. It was, uh, 
105 of us. This is on your honor flight. And it seemed like we all family. We all was on, on that plane together, you know. And the guy who was in charge of me, you know, after I got there, I was in a wheelchair. They took me everywhere in a wheelchair. And this one guy took care of me, you know, and he was one of the most finest and the kindest guys. He was white. And everywhere we went, they were telling us, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. Back when I took pictures with a bunch of college kids in Washington when I went to Underfly, and it was all, it, it, I felt like somebody. And then I've been feeling like that ever since. Because they told me, he said, uh, you were just as important as anybody else. I told him what I was, I, I said I was with. He said, if you don't be able to do what you were doing, then people wouldn't be able to do what they were doing. You finally got the recognition and the reward you deserved. And the segregation don't bother me now. I, I mean, I know that I'm a man. I know who I am. And nobody going to take that away from me. I know, I know who I am. But I don't hold no grudge against nobody, Paul. I'm 97 years old now, Paul. Okay. But I've, I've, had, I've had people like you to meet and, and, and treat me like I'm a human being, you know. I ain't had no problem with nobody. See, I can tell when a person is not right, and I stay away from him. Hank, when you, when you came back from Honor Flight, when you got to the airport and you saw all the people there cheering, singing, the band was playing... What was that like for you? It made me feel good, Paul. When, when, when we got off that airplane, the fire department met us, and each one of those firemen pushed us in the put, Those of us that was in the wheelchairs, they pushed us, brought us from the plane. That's what, and I, I felt good. And when I coming through there, everybody was saluting me, and I was saluting them, and. Uh, some some of the army's uh, high officers was met us at that at thing, you know, and they were thinking as far as service and all that. I, I was with the regular bunch, you know. I felt good. Finally, I made you good. feel like you were a soldier. Yeah, I felt like I was a soldier. <laughs> oh man, it was really. After that honor flight, I really, I really been blessed. There's some good people everywhere. Well, there's a good person that you married a long time ago, Doris. How long have you been married? <laughs> 72 years. Tell me, you, you told me once that you had a secret for success for a long marriage. What was your secret? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we agreed on that. When I, I told that joke, you know, well, in fact, it's true. We agreed when we got married, you know, that we weren't going to separate. And people asked me, say, how long you stay, how you stayed married that long? And I told him a joke, you know what I mean? I said, sometimes it get a little heated. And uh, I go, go outside and cool off. And I, I spend a lot of time outside. <laughs> yeah. And Doris does the same, I take it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we still, uh, we still 72 years, and we still have our little spats sometimes, you know what I mean? But we're still together. That's fabulous. And uh, I thank God that I still... Able to drive. I drive my car to a little short distance, you know, like picking up groceries and going to the drugstore or something like that. 
I don't drive on the highway no more, you know, right. uh, expressways. Uh, but uh, I thank God that I, I'm still driving. And well, Paul, I really enjoyed talking with you, but I'm sorry that I can't hear like I want to. That's all right. You've done well. Now, I wish that we could have been in person, yeah. you know, where we talk. Right. But this virus has messed up everything. Yeah, you know it me? surely has. It has really messed up a lot it of really, things. It really has messed up because I wanted to see you. I wanted to talk with you. Right. In person, you know me, but... Uh, well, hopefully down the road we'll be able to do that when, when they get yeah, this vaccine cool. taken care of. Hank Robertson, it's always a pleasure. Just a great joy to talk to you and learn of your experience. Thank you for your service, for all the good things you've done, for working hard, for understanding. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for the time, Hank. Yeah, and I thank you for even thinking about me, Paul, to, to do this. And I hope that I said something, you know, you know, you know I, I give you kind of a, a history of what happened. But I, I, I pray that God will bless you and keep you and your family. Thanks, and Hank. And good health. And you're a wonderful person. I love you. And may God bless your family. Thank you, Hank. Thank you. And thank you for taking this time with me. you found today's honor thank inspire episode to be moving and meaningful if you did please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts the impact honor flight chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors to support our mission to find our veteran application to volunteer or simply for more information please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.